and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In 1997, the landmark Leandro decision was issued by the North Carolina Supreme Court, which articulated a constitutional guarantee that North Carolina children were entitled to a sound basic education. That decision required that the North Carolina General Assembly would provide necessary funds which were required in order to improve the delivery of critical educational opportunities for children enrolled in K-12 institutions. 25 years later, the General Assembly has failed to satisfy its mandate to improve the educational system for children in the state. Just last week, the designated Leandro supervising judge following an extensive evaluation by an outside consultant, ordered the state to provide $1.7 billion to begin the process of implementing the Leandro mandate. Why are we at this point? And what is the impact of this latest judicial decision are just two of the questions that we will discuss this evening. Joining us this evening are attorney Elizabeth Haddock, who is the Regional Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, Naomi Hodges, who is with the Every Child North Carolina, Marcus Bass, who is the Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and is the Deputy Director of the North Carolina Black Alliance, and Dean Malik Edwards of the NCCU School of Law. These are our experts who will lead us through this discussion. So thank each of you for uh, joining with us this evening. Well, let's start this uh, discussion. I'm, I'm gonna start out with, uh, with, with Elizabeth. Uh, if, if you can kind of just explain to our audience, what was the, uh, your involvement and the involvement of uh, the, uh, I think it was the Center for uh, Civil Rights at that time uh, in uh, working uh, to uh, obtain the initial uh, mandate in the uh, Leandro case? Well, we, um, we the, uh, let's see, back when Mark Dorison and I were at uh, the UNC Center for Civil Rights, which um, of course was led by Julius Chambers, uh, we were retained to represent um, interveners, uh, the plaintiff interveners, what are referred to as the pen interveners. And these were students in the Charlotte Mecklenburg School District. Uh, we, and we intervened on, on their behalf, uh, or they intervened and we represented them in 2005. So just after the Supreme Court's 2004 uh, decision, you know, affirming that the state had violated its constitutional duty to provide a sound basic education to students and 
uh, ordering the state to remedy that violation. It, it, uh, Justice Orr's decision, the decision Justice Orr wrote for, for the court back in t- 2004. Prior to that, um, the uh, the UNC Center for Civil Rights with Jack Boger um, as its deputy director authored a an amicus brief to the court um, to the Supreme Court in 2004, um, you know, t- explaining what the court's authority would be to order a remedy in this case. And, you know, that amicus brief, which was never filed, it was submitted to the Supreme Court in October of 2004, um, offered a lot of guidance, right, about at which the court heard and, and, and you know, indicated in, in that uh, opinion in 2004 that it understood that it had the authority to do, to order a remedy where there'd been a constitutional violation. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that language from that original um, decision in 2004 is, is referenced in Judge Lee's order um, from last week. So that I would say, you know, we we had a role as sort of, uh, you know, an amicus to the court, uh, served as amici um, in in 2004, and then again uh, as representatives of the Penn intervenors as of 2005. Okay. Well, let me just go to Marcus and uh, Naomi, and uh, ask you to kind of talk about uh, the role that uh, your organization uh, has have played in uh, working through this uh, Leandro mess. Well, I would uh, first like to thank uh, you for uh, hosting this uh, very timely discussion in the Legal Eagle Review. I wanna say uh, greetings to all the listeners and really wanna thank Elizabeth for the hard work in what we kind of call Leandro II. Uh, Leandro one being the 1994, the original um, kind of edict uh, of malfeasance on behalf of the state to provide a sound basic education. Uh, Elizabeth helped elevate through Charlotte Mecklenburg. And I wanna say 1994 was about rural access. Uh, these counties in particular in Leandro are largely uh, African-American, largely communities of color. As a matter of fact, I'm from uh, Sampson County, which is very close to Hoke County, one of the original Uh, Leandro counties. And I think it's evident to also note that the standard by which uh, Leandro was really drawn up was not around uh, the deficiencies in education for Black students in particular. Uh, I think when you look at this definition of at-risk students, that provided a broader context by which I think the court decision uh, then, the court decision now has determined unfairness but Leandro was, uh, in all actuality, a, um, a white individual that uh, was able to leverage this case going to a rural school district, seeing the disparity, the longstanding disparity uh, that was happening in those districts in regards to an equitable education. When you compare education in some of these urban school districts, what he was receiving in Hope County was unfair. Now, the unfairness happened well before Leandro. And in the Black Alliance, uh, we've always looked at uh, the opportunity disparity, particularly in uh, marginalized communities, African-American communities across the state. Historically, we work with black elected officials uh, in a capacity to help provide 
issue-based, nonpartisan information for them to make the best decision possible uh, in their elected capacity. And then we work with residents and community, uh, more so your community leaders, grass tops organizations and community that are Black-led, to help them harness uh, a sense of advocacy and voter engagement 365 days a year. Uh, one of the things that we have always known, uh, Hope County has a sizable uh, population of African-Americans and Black elected officials. And I think when we see the wins that just happened recently in Durham uh, with the election of uh, Mayor-elect O'Neill, it says something when you have representation uh, that represents and looks like the communities that they serve. And in a lot of North Carolina, they don't have the opportunity on a state level to have uh, legislators that look like them. The legislature controls the public school system. And so this disparity um, has been made invisible because the power dynamics have been made invisible. Uh, and so we worked to make sure that uh, our members knew the harm and disparity. And then uh, connecting the dots with the Justice Center's work, and I want to highlight uh, the work of uh, Communities for the Education of Every Child, which Naomi can articulate very well. Um, we saw that communities that were impacted alone could not carry this burden of justice. Uh, having um, a plaintiff like CMS, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, at that time, the largest school district, not sure if between Wake County and Charlotte, who's the largest now, but the fact that uh, this definition at risk had to um, really be the elevating factor that connected the dots between the rural disparity and the urban disparity in school districts. When we talk about um, school districts that are uh, largely African-American, even in urban areas, when we look at uh, special populations, special needs populations, when we look at um, black and brown populations of students, there is a need to make sure that we're making power visible in every aspect of this process because the majority of residents don't know that they are uh, being disparaged along the lines of education. They know they had a, uh, some resources that they could have had differently compared to other areas, but until you really let them see the per capita spending per student uh, and the disparity between one county's investment and another county's investment and point to why, we can create policy change, but the people won't know it. And then they'll continue to be uh, harmed by these policies. And so we work in the Black Alliance and particularly with this Every Child and Sea Coalition to make sure that um, these elements of power are made visible. And I, I'm, I'm thankful to have Naomi leading this coalition of groups across the state in this, in this work. Okay. All right, Naomi, with that uh, intro, uh, can you talk about the work of the uh, Every Child uh, Coalition uh, in uh, dealing with uh, the uh, Leandro? Conundrum. Of course, and um, thank you, Marcus. He's uh, He and the North Carolina Black Alliance and Advanced Carolina have been wonderful partners in moving this work forward. And um, you talk about the role that Every Child in C uh, has played in moving this work forward, but it's really the work of our partners, right? We're a statewide community-led organization, and it's not just one of us, it's all of us that is moving this work forward. It's reaching out to communities, it's educating them, about the Leandro plan, it's asking them what do they need from the funding that's going to come from Leandro? How do they want to direct it um, within their own communities? And so um, earlier in the year, we reached out to people across the state and, and asked them to call on um, Governor Cooper to include the Leandro plan in uh, his budget. We've continued to put pressure on the General Assembly to fully fund the plan. We've made it very clear that um, any budget from the state that doesn't include the full implementation of the plan is unacceptable, right? This plan is something that um, is court ordered and it's something that brings 
our education system up to a national standard, right? This is something in our constitution that says we are required to give our students, our parents, our teachers, our non-instructional staff um, a sound basic education, right? Um, and an environment in which they want to come to work, they want to be happy uh, in their work environment, that they feel uh, secure, that they're well paid. Um, and so our role has been making it clear to the General Assembly that um, what they're doing right now and stopping the plan is unacceptable and um, that our community members are paying attention and that it's, it's now is the time. We have uh, an excess in revenue just sitting in unallo unallocated funds. Um, and so we need, we need the money moved. It's, it's not a lot of money compared to the rest that's in the revenue uh, that's in the reserve. So that's kind of been our role. We've been uh, talking a lot with our legislative allies in the General Assembly, we've held several town halls, um, parent trainings to get them involved with what the Leandro plan is. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. I had no idea about the Leandro case uh, prior to joining Every Child in Sea, right? Um, this case is older than I am. I should have known about this case. I knew uh, about the um, inequities in our public school system, but I didn't know how to, uh, I didn't know who to point to for why then equities existed. And so part of our role has also been educating people um, and getting them more involved. Right. Dean uh, Edwards, uh, undergirding this uh, discussion uh, so far about uh, Leandro is this notion of uh, whether uh, the court has the uh, authority to uh, compel a remedy uh, where there has been this uh, deficiency in the uh, provision of, uh, of education uh, in light of the uh, constitutional uh, mandate uh, that uh, was uh, issued in uh, 1997. Why is that an issue uh, dating back to 1997 and why is it still an issue today? I'll probably take it back even farther than that. I'm from New Jersey and so Abbott litigation in Jersey started in 73. So when I hear 25 years, I'm like, okay, it's not that bad. But it's this understanding of separation of powers. I think one of the important things that comes out of North Carolina is that North Carolina's court stood up. They could have punted and said that it was a non-justiciable issue left to the legislature. They didn't do that. They said that it was, in fact, an issue that the courts could examine. But there's still deference to our understandings of separation of power. Um, but the legislature has failed to act. And when the legislature fails to act, then the court has to impose a remedy. So the legislature has had their opportunity. That's when it's important that it has been 25 years. If the legislature had acted, then the court would have said the proper thing is for them to act. The failure of the legislature to act requires the court to act. It's the same thing we saw in the race context with Brown, right? The all deliberate speed they gave the states a chance to act, and when the states refuse to act, then you have to impose remedy. Um, the use of special masters, or in this case, the consultants become important because it allows you to bring in expertise. But I think the work that you guys are doing is actually more important. I think oftentimes consultants meet, miss things and making communities, parents, teachers, school employees a part of what this remedy should look like is important. I think there, in fact, needs to be more 
town halls. We need greater involvement of these organizations working with the special master or the consultant to ensure that those needs, because it's not just about equitable funding. These rural districts, these minority majority minority districts, in fact, are going to need greater resources. So even just giving them the same amount would not reach the promise of Leandro. I was good. If I can jump in, Professor Jordan, because um, you know this is a really important point. That the issue of just disability, you know, the state argued back in 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 1997 or in the in the um, mid 90s in the at the trial level that this was a non-justiciable issue. And, you know, the, the Supreme Court ruled on that in the 1997 uh, decision. So it, it, we did have that thrown up. And, um, you know, uh, we, 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 we went through that ringer already in this case. All right. And, and this is, uh, you know, a, a real problem uh, that we have both uh, Democratic controlled legislatures and Republican controlled legislators all taking the same position uh, with respect to their failure to fund uh, the uh, schools pursuant to the uh, Leandro uh, mandate. And uh, so why is there this across the board reluctance to uh, deal with uh, the educational rights of children uh, within uh, within our state, and uh, we're going to have to take a break uh, right now. And uh, when we when we come back from our break, we're going to start with uh, with that uh, question. So those of you who are listening, hang on. Uh, we will uh, be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation, completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're, we're talking about the uh, Leandro uh, decision, the uh, history of it, its uh, impact uh, here in uh, North Carolina, uh, and the uh, development of this mandate of a uh, sound basic uh, education. And this was a decision initially uh, authored by the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court in 1997 a case that actually began in 1994 out of uh, Hope County. And uh, as, as an aside right, right now, uh, the uh, lead plaintiff uh, in, uh, in that case uh, 
was uh, a student uh, at the time, uh, is now a, uh, has gone to uh, uh, college, went to law school, and is now practicing law. Uh, and this case continues to, uh, to linger. Uh, so we left uh, when we took our break with the question kind of hanging in the air of, uh, why is it that there's been this resistance from both uh, the uh, Democratic side and the Republican side uh, to uh, uh, satisfying this uh, mandate from the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court? And uh, Elizabeth, you wanted to start us off with, uh, with an answer to that. Well, I'm just thinking about what Malika Edwards said and um, about, you know, how important it is to have a knowledgeable uh, consultant, a special master to advise the court on a remedy and how important that has been um, here. And, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not in a position to explain, you know, why different administrations had and, and, and whether the you know, there's some sort of political uh, party line around uh, ensuring the funds necessary to provide an opportunity for a sound basic education to every child in the state. Um, I, I'm just not, you know, educated enough about what goes on in the halls of the General Assembly to speak to that. I think there's other people on this on this panel who are, but I will say that I, in looking back, over the last 20 years at what the legislature did. You know, there were over 20 hearings in front of Judge Manning. Um, and just in the last five years, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a, a plenty of status conferences with Judge Lee about a how to remedy the constitutional violation. And, you know, my assessment from looking at those hearings over the last 20 years is that the um, the executive and legislative branches simply did not have the uh, information um, necessary to devise a comprehensive remedial plan. And they got that information in, in 2018, 2019, 2020 through this effort that that we led, I think the plaintiffs uh, clearly, the plaintiff interveners clearly led that push to get um, WestEd, you know, this educational uh, school funding experts to do this comprehensive study and provide the plan, which the state then offered to the court. The state defendants offered to the court proposed the comprehensive remedial plan. And the and Judge Lee approved that in in June and and here and ordered that it be implemented and and here we are now I can say just based on the record at least the statements made by um, Senator Berger's uh, spokespersons that you know there there does seem to be a very clear unwillingness by the leaders of the General Assembly right now to fund public education adequately. And I think they need to be called out on that. I mean, their statements are very clear that they, 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 are, they do not want to do this. And the, the, the um, distraction that they are offering that there's a separation of powers issue here is I think irresponsible. 
um, for their office because there is no separation. This is how the separation of powers works. This is checks and balances. They have failed. They've been given adequate opportunity um, to uh, come forward with funding you know, this remedy and they haven't done it. And so the court must step in because the court must uh, ensure a remedy where there's been a violation. Marcus. Um, so I'm, I'm glad in this case, I don't play, I'm, I'm not an attorney. I just play one on TV. So I can answer this question a little bit um, more personally um, with the historical context here. Um, I wanna share, and I'm, I'm so glad that uh, we're talking about the constitution. Attorney Haddock's uh, elevation of the constitution is very significant, as was the fact that the constitution mandated access for every child to have a sound basic education. When we look at that um, provision, there is very few constitutions across the country that you'll see a direct provision like that. North Carolina is very special. And that didn't happen um, you know, just out of nowhere. Uh, the original constitution that we look at in North Carolina has been ratified on three different occasions. Um, this section in which uh, includes a provision for the education of every child was created in the 18, around 1838. Uh, that provision was put in place because at that time, North Carolina was mainly rural, black or white, you were uneducated. And there was a need at the time to make sure that we were properly, adequately preparing certain individuals for the workforce. And so um, as a constitutional change in 1838 occurred, in 1840, you see uh, Rockingham County being one of the first public schools opened uh, for access in North Carolina for students. Now, 20 years after that, uh, in between this time, we have the Civil War. Uh, so this constitutional mandate that was supposed to provide a sound basic education for every white child, um, in this case, now we see the emancipation of formerly enslaved individuals, and now a ratification of the Constitution in 1868 based on Reconstruction, we see now an inclusion uh, principle here. One of the things that Judge Lee mentioned uh, in regards to the difference in this constitutional um, uh, emphasis here for sound basic education is that it is a positive duty imposed by the Constitution to come forward and provide a sound basic education. In a lot of cases, typically considerations from the Constitution have been restrictive or punitive. But in this case, providing access for uh, education means what? More funding. Uh, and then when you add in the fact that we're not just talking about a white educated class of individuals, we're actually talking about all meaning all. At this point, it really meant all back then and at the end of our reconstruction. That began to put a spin on things. Now we have to provide um, different remedies because we don't want every child uh, to be educated. And so I'm thinking in uh, the process of creating a very good law for every child at that time, the writers of the Constitution created a standard by which they were still held accountable to even after the emancipation of slaves. And so I think when you look at um, the Democratic and Republican volleying of who owns people uh, in this construct of Democrats being the first party uh, to uh, really embrace slavery, to hold slavery on and that changing uh, into the Republican uh, kind of construct of racism, uh, both parties have been at fault. And now we see clearly when we look at this battle around education funding or properly funding all students, we see a majority uh, of uh, minority students uh, not receiving a sound basic education constitutional mandate. In essence, uh, the preserving of the pure aspect 
of what the founding fathers were attempting of our constitution were attempting to uphold by a sound basic education with an asterisk. I think when we see this back and forth volleying between the General Assembly, that is a conditioning of uh, trying to ensure that uh, only a certain number of individuals in community are educated uh, to the fullest extent of what a sound basic constitutional mandate will require. And so I know that was a roundaway um, element of saying race plays a big factor regardless of who's at stake. But I think when you look at the uh, founding of the constitution, the shift in the electorate um, by way of emancipation and enfranchising individuals through education and through voting rights, then you see why the cause and effect is here um, when we talk about a large percentage of funding going to a uh, largely rural demographic of students and schools in, the, in, in districts across the state. Okay. Naomi. Um, yeah, thank you. I I can't tell you why the General Assembly has uh, not funded uh, the Leander Plan or, or taken action, um, but I can say like the Leander Plan is often a dirty word in the General Assembly right now, like depending on who you're talking to, uh, they might shut down when you bring up Leandro. Um, some of our uh, partners within Every Child in C don't start the conversation by mentioning Leandro or the plan. They start it with we need funding for X, Y, and Z, and then they bring up Leandro later because they want those doors to remain open um, for them. And even some legislators have said throughout this year, as we're, we've been waiting for this budget, um, for the final budget, they've said uh, the plan is being funded, uh, but they've only picked bits and pieces to fund. And Judge Lee has said, it's not a menu of options, right? We have to fund all of the plan to get us up to uh, the sound basic education that our students are promised. Um, and to Elizabeth's point, right, the GA needs to be called out on their negligence to adequately fund our public education system. And next year we have midterm elections. So we'll be looking to draw attention to the lawmakers who are up for re-election and who continuously create roadblocks to implementing the land plan. And answering the question is hard because Generally what I've seen looking at other jurisdictions that have gone through this is not wanting to raise tax, right? So school finance in California led to Proposition 13. New Jersey, the Democrats lost when they had to fund it. But North Carolina actually has the money to do it. We've got enough money in the rainy day fund that they could do this without raising taxes. The only time I've ever seen them not doing it because of fear to raise taxes, which leads me to believe they're not doing it because somebody told them they had to do it. And I don't know that they believe that the courts have a stick. So in New Jersey, they actually had to threaten, the courts had to threaten to shut down school. They said, if you do not fund this and do not equitably provide for education, then nobody goes to school. And I don't think that the legislature thinks that the courts in North Carolina would do this. So it's sort of whether or not what are the injunctive powers of the court? And are they willing to use that injunctive power to get the remedy in place? Yeah, so this raises um, so many questions. Um, and in thinking about, uh, Naomi, one of the things that you were saying is, you know, you weren't aware, as many folks were not aware of Leandro's, you know, folks are going through the school systems, the students certainly don't know, their parents don't know. And you mentioned midterm elections are coming up. So how do we galvanize the public to hold the General Assembly accountable? Because it, 
is it possible to get movement, real movement, without the collective action of, of course, your wonderful organizations, but the collective action of the community at large? And Naomi, can you start? Yes, I would love to. Um, I think that all action should be community-led, right? We should be able to refer to our own communities as to what they want to do and give them as much agency as we can. Um, as far as like, uh, you know, uh, referring to midterm elections, um, for us and every child in C, it's going to be about um, speaking to people in a language they understand, right? A lot of our uh, communications is to uh, policymakers and lawyers, but not everyone speaks like that, you know? How can we connect the Leandro work to everyday people's lives, um, right? That's drawing attention to uh, the bus driver shortage that's going on right now. The, um, the knowledge that, you know, there are lots of substitutes be like long-term substitutes in our classrooms. Um, the, the need for like clean water in our schools, the need for um, nurses, right? Things that people understand. Like when I was um, in public school, it was normal for us to not have like working locks on our bathroom, which seems really small. But when you think about like that one lack of privacy, like just the general lack of um, funding for infrastructure and you trace it back to this um, neglect of adequate funding from the General Assembly, you know, making those connections and in, in community context is what is going to help drive us to this collective movement of, you know, recognizing that this, this legislator, this lawmaker is not having my best interests at heart. Um, yeah. And that makes me think about something Marcus had mentioned before. He was talking about the opportunity disparity. And so when you're thinking about putting it in language that regular folk understand, Marcus, can you talk about what that opportunity disparity looks like and how you would explain it to a student, a parent, so, so they really get it in terms of the harm, the long-term harm that our communities are suffering? That's a very good question, April. And I think especially considering the fact that that $1.7 billion tag, that's a very big tag. Uh, a lot of us won't see, uh, won't be able to fathom $1.7 billion. But um, folks can see how many school buses that is. $1.7 billion worth of school buses can cover an entire uh, state. Um, you know, $1.7 billion in schools means X amount of new schools in a district. I think when we talk about the plain language, uh, I think we first have to acknowledge the lived experience of individuals in these um, opportunity depressed areas where we are seeing schools that have not been rebuilt since prior to Leandro. I think everybody loves to see some of the, um, you know, the schools in, in Wake County and some of these other areas that almost look like Hogwarts, um, but on the inside, those schools look very much so like uh, Silicon Valley. I think in uh, rural North Carolina and in some uh, urban school zip codes that are more, uh, largely minority, uh, we're seeing that the disparity can be visually seen in uh, the access to uh, different resources. I remember at one point in time, you were looking forward to dissect a frog in school. Uh, now students aren't able to get hands-on experience or an actual lab in any school. And so I think it's very easy to talk about what is not in schools compared to what we had in the past and what other districts have and then point to a dollar investment and show that disparity opportunity and that fund gap that the state has to meet based on the Leandro plan. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about education 
in North Carolina. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, attorney Elizabeth Haddock, who is the regional director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, Naomi Hodges, who is with Every Child North Carolina, Marcus Bass, who is the Executive Director of Advance Carolina and the Deputy Director of the NC Black Alliance, and Dean Malik Edwards of the NCCU School of Law. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with four education experts who are incredibly mindful of the issues that we have here in North Carolina about ensuring that every child is provided with a sound and basic education. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dean Malik Edwards, who is a constitutional and educational law expert. We have Marcus Bass, who's the executive director of Advance Carolina. We have Naomi Hodges with Every Child NC and Elizabeth Haddock, who is an attorney and regional director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. So we have, of course, been talking about the General Assembly's failure to ensure that the order that was issued by the court in Leandro 1 and 2 have been fulfilled. And the question now is, what will the resistance look like in the future? Like, what do we imagine needs to happen or will happen in order to get even more traction? Um, Elizabeth, let's start with you. Well, what needs to happen in the short term, I think, is that the uh, the um, legislature needs to uh, make the needs to use this thirty day stay wisely and get a budget that funds um, the the comprehensive remedial plan, which the state proposed. So, 
Um, and I think, you know, in the long term, I mean, this is this is a uh, you know, this is something we have to do every year. We have to recommit every year as a people to fund the public schools. I mean, I, I think, you know, if if you back up and look at it from a purely economic standpoint about how to meet the challenges of a global economy in this state um, and, and bring in the sort of, uh, you know, jobs and and you know sort of indices of well-being in, in in a person's life into all corners of our state that you have to start with the public schools I mean we've known that for a long time so I, I think just recommitting every year and seeing this as an investment in the public good and an investment in what you know the Supreme Court called our most important renewable resource our children um, and, and, and sort of putting aside, you know, this notion that this is something that the private sector can just take care of, that, you know, we can just withdraw from public schools and do, you know, um, private schools or voucher programs or all of these, all of these, these means of siphoning off resources from where most of our students spend their time, which is in the traditional public schools in the state. Well, you know, the uh, uh, contradiction, a contradiction that I see in what's happening with the uh, legislature is that there, uh, there are sufficient funds being pumped into private schools. And uh, this notion that we are privatizing uh, education, the constitutional mandate relates to public schools. And uh, that is where there is this resistance uh, to uh, providing uh, the type of uh, funds that everyone agrees are, are necessary. And the private school, I mean, the public schools are basically uh, attended by uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, black and brown uh, people of color. Uh, what is the impact of those different uh, populations uh, composition of populations on the uh, recalcitrance of the uh, General Assembly uh, to respond in a meaningful way to what uh, the uh, Leandro mandate uh, suggests or, or commands. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think that it has everything to do with the response that we've seen. Um, I mean, that that's why, you know, the NAACP branch in, from Charlotte Mecklenburg got involved in this case, right? Because Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, one of the wealthiest school districts, right, uh, also has these pockets, this, the hyper segregation that began when Charlotte Mecklenburg schools did away with, was forced to do away with by the, the uh, Capaccioni decision um, that that dissolved, that was brought by white parents that dissolved a school diversity uh, desegregation plan that the, the, the school had system had been under um, for several decades. That sort of diversity conscious student assignment plan, which Wake County also had before, um, you know, their school board shifted and did away with it was what ensured that every school in the district was a high quality school where you could you didn't have these entrenched uh, uh, poverty and and hyper segregation by race. 
And, you know, if you want to ask yourself why those two things go together, poverty and race, then you've got to look at the legacy of, of race discrimination in our state and in our, in our nation. But I mean, absolutely, I think it's very clear why you have a, a lack of will. Um, I, you know, what I said before is also true. You've got a lack of will and then you've got ignorance, right? And you've got a lot of smart people in the executive branch and a lot of smart people in the legislative branch. Um, but for whatever reason, and I think the, the population that we're talking about, um, the representation of the population, of people, of, you know, kids of color it is got a lot to do with it, unfortunately. And that just goes back to the legacy. But, you know, we've got eight billion dollars in surplus funds in this state um, right now. Eight billion dollars and a and a and a Senate that's talking about doing tax cuts. So there's no excuse, no excuse right now for not funding the comprehensive remedial plan. And attorney Haddix, that eight billion dollars of surplus that really belongs to the people in the state of North Carolina, that is less than the amount of funding that was suggested that would bring the state back to parity based on the Andrew plan. So even if we utilize those funds, we would still have a surplus and we would still meet the Leandro man. Yeah, no, it's one point. The comprehensive remedial plan is one point eight three billion. We got eight billion dollars in surplus and that's for two years. So. So, Malik, um, Elizabeth, you know, made the point, great point that if you look at this, you know, even, um, you know, race aside, if you look at this from just a pure economic lens, right? It makes economic sense to ensure that our children are educated so that it increases the wealth of this state. Why is it so difficult for the legislature to look at this public education issue from that lens? I think it's because people view education as a zero-sum game. They don't want to acknowledge that there's enough for everyone. Um, when I teach my education law class, I said I'm always torn as to whether people want a good education for their children or if they want a good education for their children and a poor education for everyone else's. And sometimes I think it's the latter. And if these students are actually given a high quality education, I think there's some middle class parents out there who don't know if their kids could keep up. And what's the purpose of education? Is education supposed to be revolutionary or is it to train people to fill these same positions? I mean, if we have an education system that's supposed to create this surplus labor, and I think some of the things we're looking at going on with folks not wanting to take these minimum wage jobs actually makes it harder for us to convince the legislature to allocate the funds. Because I like, if you educate these folks, they're really not going to take the jobs. And I can't get nobody to flip burgers from them. It makes sense. <laughs> hard, hard to swallow. So, so this is a, an issue where um, we need to make sure that more folks are aware and, and involved. Naomi, do you have any suggestions for someone who's listening to this show uh, they, their eyes are, are being open. They may not have been aware like so many. What suggestions can you offer to help them become better educated and to share this information within their community? Um, well, education is always hard. That's why what we're kind of talking about. But um, to become better educated, I would say, um, one, start with, uh, you know, 
the the Leander plan. We've talked a little bit about it. We haven't gone into the full history of it too much, but there's plenty out there about the Leander case. Um, we have on our website, if you visit everychildnc.org, we have plenty of resources for people. Um, if you're interested in learning more, you can also just um, organize within your own community, talk to other parents, to other teachers, find out what um, is needed most for you right now and see how you can organize at a local level, at, at your school board level, at your, your, with your county commissioners. Um, how can you take whatever budget you have right now to address those needs um, and think long-term about uh, your elected officials at the state level um, and how they're representing you and what you want um, funded in your education system? The, um, going forward, the uh, General Assembly has appealed Judge Lee's uh, order directing that $1.7 billion be provided to the uh, school system. And uh, that order was predicated in large part on an agreement with the state uh, uh, of North Carolina that it was necessary and was a, an important first step. How do you see the uh, appellate court responding to the appeal from the, uh, from the General Assembly that uh, Judge Lee does not have the authority uh, to uh, force them to release $1.7 billion uh, to our school system? Uh, so uh, Elizabeth, Malik, uh, Marcus, uh, any of you, uh, how, how do you see that playing out? Well, I'll tell you that, you know, Judge Lee's order was, 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 was very well grounded in the precedent concerning the judiciary's inherent authority to um, ensure remedy, right? Which is, uh, you know, it, you know, Article One, Section 18 of our Constitution, um, you know, access to the courts, uh, Article One, um, you know, has the Declaration of Rights, of course, you know, the, the provisions that, that make a affirmative, it, the only affirmative right in our Constitution is the right to a sound basic education and the um, legislature's duty, the state's duty to, to provide for that education is also grounded um, in Article 1, Section 15, and in Article 9, Section 2, of course. And so, you know, I, I, I think that this is, you know, Supreme Court, North Carolina Supreme Court precedent um, about on that inherent authority. The, the other provision, the other basis for Judge Lee's decision, I think, you know, sort of the constitutional appropriation of funds necessary to, to, to ensure that constitutionally compliant education, I think is, um, you know, is, is, a, is a matter of first impression. And I think you're going to see the, and, you know, Justice Orr said this recently, um, retired Justice Orr, you know, said this recently, um, that, you know, that that may be um, a, a, new, a new matter on its face with the court. But I think that the, 
there, there, are, there are many years of precedent on the question of the inherent power. And, and quite frankly, because we have this um, constitutional provision, which, you know, as, as, Mar as Marcus Bass pointed out, you know, we have this affirmative duty. We have it grounded in several provisions in the Constitution. Um, you know, it's going to be the, the state's going to be the state Supreme Court is going to be hard pressed to find that that the courts of North Carolina have not have not shown sufficient deference to the legislature in waiting all of these years and giving them all of these opportunities to comply with their constitutional duty to offer a remedy which the state offered through the comprehensive remedial plan. That was their plan for, for meeting their constitutional obligation. And now it comes time to fund that. And, um, you know, the legislature can't get a budget, which it hasn't been able to do since 2017 anyway. So I, I you know, I, I think it would be a departure from long established precedent um, regarding the judicial judiciary's inherent authority to ensure a remedy where there's been a finding of liability and a finding of a constitutional violation and then coupled with the extreme importance of this particular constitutional right I, you know it's going to be hard I'd be hard pressed to see our state supreme court veer from that obligation mark it's something that uh naomi had mentioned about um the community becoming more involved and she mentioned school board meetings and I couldn't help but think about the school board meetings we've had of late where you have individuals going to the school board making claims legitimate or not um, what can you know but in this we're talking about a constitutional requirement that is not being satisfied that can be satisfied why don't we have that same type of energy and momentum with this issue? I think that is a that is a, a grounding question, not just in this conversation, but across the board, especially when we talk about critical race theory, when we talk about the mask mandates. Um, since uh, HB2, uh, the bathroom bill, uh, we have seen uh, our state government play a very intrusive role in uh, the quality of life and the standard of education in North Carolina and across the board. And I think when you look at um, individuals over the summer that, or even in this past uh, season, that have uh, stormed, just like on January 6th, uh, the Capitol building was stormed, individuals are storming these uh, school board meetings mm -hmm. But the lived experience of individuals in these districts is still undermined by the legislature not fully funding based on the Leandro plan. And so I think this comes down to narrative and messaging. I think uh, in some cases, uh, we see conservative uh, operatives uh, always being able to use race in very dog whistle type ways uh, to really fear monger their groups into turning out in this way. And I, I would be hard pressed to believe that a lot of those folks that turned out to those meetings actually had children in schools, in public schools. But I think uh, the vast majority of the problem that we're seeing here now is uh, conservatives and Republicans um, playing upon a very um, naivete of their constituent bases. And I think we have to make sure that we understand that we still hold the majority. Everyday residents across North Carolina, individual families that aren't, don't have time to go to school board meetings are still in the majority. We have to reach them, find them, and figure out other ways for them to get their public comment known. 
Uh, one example I'll uh, elevate and then I'll pause here. Uh, during the redistricting battle, uh, none of our typical advocates were going into the public hearing meetings because of COVID-19. So what we ended up having to do was we elevated uh, hearing parties where individuals could type in their remarks and send them in for public comment to the legislature. We need to do the same thing for school board and reinvigorate some new tactics so our voices, voices of regular everyday parents can be heard. Well, it would also help if some of these, uh, these voices ran for the uh, school board and for the legislative seats that uh, are out there and for county commissioners uh, as well. Uh, but I'm gonna leave it to uh, April to, to take us <laughs> on further. <laughs> Well, and unfortunately, we're out of time, but I think that's a powerful message to, to end on, right? So how do we reinvigorate? How do we use narrative and messaging so that we can ensure that this constitutional right is fulfilled? Um, this episode, of course, moves us in the right direction. We can't thank our four outstanding experts enough for their contributions. Um, and we have with us here attorney Elizabeth Haddock. She is the regional director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. Naomi Hodges, who's with Every Child NC. Marcus Bass, who is the executive director of Advance Carolina and deputy director of the North Carolina Black Alliance. And Dean Malik Edwards of NCCU School of Law, constitutional law professor and professor of education law. We cannot thank you enough for joining us. Without a doubt, we will have you back um, to talk about this very important issue and to take a, uh, a bead on where we are in the next couple of months to see if there's been some significant movement. And if not, again, talk about what we can do to better galvanize. Of course, we want to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe. <laughs>